tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. In the heart of downtown Toronto, amidst ivy-covered university buildings, sits a giant concrete peacock. Or is it a chicken? Let's compromise and call it a turkey. Rising 14 stories into the air, this giant avian testament to brutalist architecture is actually the University of Toronto's main library, known officially as the John P. Robarts Library. Now, whether the building's architects back in the 1970s intended to build a giant bird-looking building in the middle of the U of T campus is a little unclear. But let's just say the building's avian-like nature has long been a staple of university folklore. The hulking bird body of the library was even said to inspire the library in Umberto Eco's classic medieval mystery novel, In the Name of the Rose. Today, the library houses over four million books, magazines, manuscripts, as well as thousands of other resources for use by both the university community and anyone who registers for a library card. But let's say you were to stand on the corner of Harvard Street and St. George, where you would face the bibliophile bird head-on. You would be looking straight at one of the treasures of the building, the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library, the home of the largest repository of publicly available rare books and manuscripts in all of Canada. And soon... That giant turkey head will play host to an exhibition dedicated to our favorite topic, food history. Mixed Messages, Making and Shaping Culinary Culture in Canada will run from mid-May to mid-August 2018 and is dedicated entirely to Canadian historical cookbooks, ranging roughly from the early 19th to the mid-20th century. Recently, I sat down with one of the curators of this exhibition, Liz Rodolfo, to talk about what makes this exhibition uniquely Canadian. We got to chat about everything from the earliest Canadian cookbooks to the rise of domestic science to even mail-in baking competitions for, and I'm not kidding here, 
magical mystery cake. And lest you think this has something to do with the legalization of cannabis in Canada, let me assure you, these mystery recipes have more to do with Depression-era food conservation than mind-altering substances. Today on The Feast, we're dedicating the entire episode to our conversation with Liz, giving you a sneak peek at some of the gems of culinary history this exhibition will highlight. And obviously, if you have the chance this summer, make sure to get down to the Fisher Library in Toronto to check out the exhibition for yourself once it opens on May 22nd. Our first idea was to look at the voices of people who were present in participating in creating what is our culinary culture in Canada, and also the voices of people who were not uh, present in the are not visible in the collections, not audible in the collections. So we wanted to see where does the material come from? Who has the agency to create this kind of material? Who's represented and who's not represented? Uh, we also wanted to use it as an opportunity to teach people about books, um, to teach them about material culture, uh, to increase their culinary objects literacy uh, by showing them all of the different interesting aspects uh, of materials um, that we have in the library, like manuscripts and uh, printed culinary texts and pamphlets. So there are sort of a few different things going on in the exhibition, but I think that the main thing is uh, the tension between many of the different forces that went into creating this culture in Canada as we know it today. Um, my name is Liz Rodolfo, and I've been working at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library since 2011. So I'm a special collections projects librarian here, and I do cataloging and help with exhibitions and digital projects. And what brought you to the Fisher? I worked at the Internet Archive for a long time, uh, digitizing books, and we had a relationship with the Fisher, and so I always admired what they did here. And then when I went to library school, I was I'm very interested in rare books and conservation, so I took those classes and had a practicum here, and it was always a dream to come back and work at the Fisher one day because the collections are incredible. Liz took me on a chronological tour of some of the exhibition's featured items, from the earliest cookbooks and food journals, some of which are older than Canada itself. And just in case you were wondering, 1867 is often the date used for Canada's birthday, a date that often goes by the fun title of Canadian Confederation. Before that, the region was largely considered just a collection of colonies controlled by the British Empire. But anyway, back to cooking in pre-Confederation Canada. Yeah, the earliest uh, item that we have printed item, Canadian printed item, is an almanac that contains some recipes. So uh, we thought it would be good to start with that because it is the earliest item we have and it also is an opportunity to show how information about food, farming, and cooking came in different containers. You know, this information would come through magazines, almanacs, so we thought that that would be a good place to start. These early examples of Canadian culinary history showcase how integrated food and cooking was, and still is, of course, to so many other facets of life. As a settler in early 19th century Canada, your recipe for bread, for example, might not just include tablespoons or cup measurements, but might also feature a farmer's calendar to know when to harvest the wheat you'd need in your recipe. Or maybe you need to know how to store eggs or apples for a long, cold Canadian winter. Maybe you need to figure out how to use vinegar to get out of a stain. 
Or maybe you want to record your mother's famous recipe for the flu. No Googling symptoms back in the early 19th century. So cookbooks, if we can even truly call them that, from this period in Canadian history, often resemble encyclopedias more than just lists of recipes. And of course, most of these were handwritten, collected by an individual or a family over many years, added to or amended as time went on. So we have a number of handwritten cookbooks in the collection. Some of them are British, one of them is Irish, we have some French and German, but we are focusing on a few Canadian and and British ones for this exhibition. Uh, So they are books written in by a person or several members of a family, several members of a community, and they contain recipes, but they also contain um, genealogical information, weather information, uh, medical recipes. Um, Sometimes their function is diaries. Occasionally they started off as ledgers or arithmetic texts, and then they became someone's um, cookbook at some point. So they're extremely interesting. They're my favorite part of the collection, and uh, I worked on um, a case related to them. It was very, very interesting for me. One of our, two of our manuscripts actually have diaries associated with them in other institutions, either published or unpublished. And so it was very exciting to be able to connect the recipes with the women and the families who wrote them. So to read a sick room recipe and then to learn about illnesses in a family through a published diary, it really brings it into context and it it brings that person alive. With many of our manuscripts, our culinary manuscripts, um, it's there's no indication of who they were owned by necessarily or how many different people they were owned by. But in this case, we were very lucky because it helps us to understand where they were situated. In those instances, how, how do you start, or what's the process by which you can identify that this manuscript is associated with this diary? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the link that you can find? One of the manuscripts that I'm looking at in the exhibition actually was signed. Um, by two members of a family. And when I started researching uh, the woman's name, I found that the family had archival material at the University of Western Ontario. And so I started uh, doing a little more reading, and the archivists there pointed me towards a diary of several female members of the family that had been published by the Champlain Society. So I was able to go through this diary looking for keywords and reading about the daily experiences of of one of the women who signed the book. So although I can't tell which recipes were hers, I know that she wrote some of the recipes in this book, and I know some of the things that she experienced in her life. And so I can think about those together, and it makes it a much more full portrait of a person. Liz is referring here to the diary of Lucy Ronalds Harris, who lived at Eldon House in London, Ontario in the mid-19th century. Her diary, along with those of some of her relatives, has been published, as Liz mentioned, entitled The Eldon House Diaries, Five Women's Views of the 19th Century. But Lucy's cookbook, which also includes a range of home remedies and medicines, has never before been widely available to the public. There were some references to things that Lucy cooked. Uh, She talked about cooking, I think, checkerboard cake. She talked about cooking something for her husband's whist group when they came in. She also talked about uh, some illnesses that one of her children was ill, and she also talked about some illnesses going around in in the neighborhood. And so this, for me, brought the medical recipes in the 
in the cookbook kind of into focus. And I was wondering, you know, did she try these with her family? And they, they probably would have been very important to her, depending on what kind of access she had to medical care at the time. She also describes uh, her difficulties in finding a cook and keeping a cook. She hires and loses three or four cooks throughout the course of her diary. And so imagining her... Um, her manuscript recipe book in terms of all of these different people that are coming and going. Was she cooking for herself? Was she required to? You know, which of these recipes belong to which of these women that she employed? You know, was she a good employer? It's It raises a lot of interesting questions about all of the other people who came and went in the context of this manuscript. Although the cookbook of Lucy Ronalds Harris is only now seeing the light of day with the Fisher exhibition, the collection also includes some of the most noteworthy, and already famous Canadian cookbooks. For example, you couldn't have a Canadian culinary history exhibition without a nod to the famous Catherine Parr Trail, who wrote The Female Immigrant's Guide in the 1850s. And if you don't know who Catherine Parr Trail is, Liz explains a little bit more about what makes this particular author and book so iconic in Canadian food history. So it's considered probably the first really Canadian cookbook because uh, Catherine Partrail emigrated from England and was looking at actual Canadian ingredients and how to deal with being a settler, how to cook with the material in the circumstances and the um, provisions that you would have. She was near Rice Lake, I think, when she first came to Canada. Um, so she was looking at the Indigenous people, seeing what they did with the local resources, using the material that she was able to get from England, and trying to create these sort of hybrid recipes. Um, some of the Canadian cookbooks that were printed earlier are actually just pirated versions of either American or British cookbooks tailored to American tastes or tailored to British tastes without thought for Canadian ingredients. But Partrail's books actually walked you through how to you know, start agriculture in Canada, um, what seasons were best for growing different things, what to do with these products, wildly sourced products, uh, wild products, um, how to preserve them, how to process them. So it was extremely practical yeah. and very useful. I think also her difficulties, I mean, it was a very hard life for her, and she wrote several other books about roughing it in the backwoods and, and emigrating to Canada and the difficulties that she faced uh, in this process. I think that that also embodies sort of the spirit of of Canada. And so for people I think that she's I think she's a a strong representation of Canada for that reason. And Liz isn't kidding here. Par Trail was one tough cookie. And her guide is as comprehensive an introduction to a settler's life in mid-19th century Canada as any potential immigrant could want. Subjects range from how to select the right ocean-going vessel to travel across the Atlantic, how to deal with postage in the New World, how to build a log cabin, even appropriate styles of dress. Recipes, of course, highlight the produce of Canada, from how to make maple syrup to wild rice. There's a section on pumpkins, corn, venison, and a whole range of recipes on how to grow, harvest, and cook with local vegetables and fruit. Now, the Fisher Library boasts one of the earliest copies available of Par Trail's Immigrant Guide, which was originally available through subscription only, and sold as a series of mini-volumes. Only in 1855 was it printed as a complete book. Not only does the Fisher boast of one of these first single-volume editions, 
but one of the curators of its upcoming Mixed Messages exhibition, Natalie Cook, recently edited a new comprehensive version of Catherine Partrail's text, published in 2017. We'll put a link to this new edition up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. But make sure to check out the 19th century version if and when you visit the exhibition. Okay, pop quiz. Give five practical points in the making of tea and boiled coffee. In your answer, compare the advantages of boiled versus filtered coffee. Question two. Plan a luncheon of three courses for six people. Provide the order of work and time required in preparation. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. All right, pencils down. So how'd you do? Stumped? Still writing? Now, if you're wondering, these questions were among those that appeared on a final exam in 1907 from the University of Toronto's Faculty of Household Science. Of course, the exam was more than just meal planning and boiled coffee definitions. It also asked students to describe the phenomena of alcoholic fermentation, the chemical composition of baking powder, and how to properly apply poultices and cold packs to the ill. But as it relates to the Fisher's upcoming cookbook exhibition, Liz and her co-curators focused on how the running of a household, including, of course, cooking meals, became a subject of scientific discipline in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Numerous schools across the U.S. and Canada grew to include domestic science departments. And among the first of these, of course, was at the University of Toronto. There's a lot of material from the University of Toronto about the history of domestic science, which I think shows how homemaking and care cooking and care for the home sort of was developed into a a professional field and how it gave women more of an opportunity to participate in the academic world and gave them more opportunities to have jobs. And all of the cases sort of tie into each other. You know, the women who went into domestic science at the university or in college or in high school went on to become the demonstrators, went on to become the spokespersonalities, went on to write recipes for these magazines or do reporting on recipes or write the columns for these magazines later. So it was really kind of an explosion of opportunity for women. Although women like Adelaide Hoodless in Ontario and Ellen Swallow Richards in the United States were the most prominent advocates for the need for formal education in domestic science, it was a woman by the name of Lillian Massey. Well, Actually, Lillian Massey Treble, who spearheaded the movement to get a degree-granting domestic science program up and running at the University of Toronto. Now, if you know Toronto, you've probably heard the name Massey before. Hart Massey, Lillian's father, had made a fortune from agricultural equipment in the mid to late 19th century. And quite a bit of that fortune turned into philanthropic gifts, sprinkled liberally not only throughout the city of Toronto, but the university in particular. But Hart Massey's daughter Lillian was also keen to get involved in her family's, shall we say, financial generosity to the university. But 
there was one problem. Women weren't allowed at the University of Toronto. At least, not before the 1880s. And even once women started to attend courses, few facilities were available to them on campus. They had no access to reading rooms, libraries. There wasn't even a women's washroom on campus. Now at the time, Lillian Massey had been running domestic science courses at one of her family's downtown missions. But she was keen to get domestic science incorporated into the university's curriculum. The Lillian Massey School in Toronto existed before the the department started at the university, Uh, and I believe it was around 1903 or 1904, uh, the university approached uh, Lillian Massey about funding a building and having the department open at the university. So Lillian Massey wanted the department housed at the university, and they approached her to create, um, with her own funding, a building for it. And so then the building at uh, Bloor and uh, Avenue Road They started building that, and I believe it opened around 1910, uh, officially. But classes were hosted in other university buildings during that in-between period as they sort of developed the program. And what a building it is. Greek-inspired with a colonnade, above which a giant frieze declares the building to be the Department of Household Science. It still stands today, just across the street from the Royal Ontario Museum. Unfortunately, household science no longer exists as a formal department in the university. And the building now hosts a rather odd assortment of tenants, including, among others, the Center for Medieval Studies and a Club Monaco clothing store. But what exactly did a course in household sciences consist of in the early 20th century? I believe it started as a short course, um, I think a one- to two-year course at the beginning. But they were aiming from the beginning, at least once it came to the university, it became a one- to two-year course. They were aiming from the beginning to make it equal to the arts and science education um, that other people were getting, that men were getting at different parts of the university. And so they had language requirements, and they had science requirements, and mathematics requirements. They wanted it to be perceived as a proper, serious uh, degree. There was, they were fighting against the perception that it was um, a very light, insubstantial kind of education, or that women were perhaps going here just to socialize or just to meet men. Mm. So there was a heavy focus on the scientific aspects, a growing field of food science. So there were several laboratories in the building, and and many of the teachers were former graduates from biology, chemistry. Um, So they were doing experiments. They were taught to learn by doing, uh, by learning about the properties, the nutritional properties of food, and doing other chemistry experiments on household products and things to actually try to learn uh, how things worked. So there was a heavy scientific angle to it. And in the Fisher's upcoming exhibition, you can see a whole range of items from Toronto's early domestic science program, from textbooks to photographs of the building itself. There are quite a few beautiful photographs of the Lillian Massey School of Household Science before it moved on to University of Toronto uh, campus, and there are some photographs of the interior of the domestic science uh, building. Uh, There are many beautiful photographs of women uh, in the lab working in the lab, the building, uh, sorry, the rooms that they used. And there are several photographs of women giving demonstrations later on in the 1950s and 1960s, working in sort of more modernized kitchen-type settings that you probably would recognize from food shows. Uh, They look a little bit more like 
the kinds of buildings that we're used to. But the older images are very interesting because uh, some of them are working at individual gas burners. Uh, some of the other artifacts are the um, course books that they would use, which would have these recipes for individual and uh, household amounts. So half of the book would be how to make one serving of cake. So a teaspoon of egg, you know, a quarter teaspoon of milk. And the second half of the book would be how to make enough to actually feed um, a family. Uh, there's also some material related to domestic science courses in uh, Toronto um, schools. Uh, so some of these people educated in the faculty would go on to be teachers of domestic science in uh, elementary and high schools. And so there are a couple of images from the City of Toronto archives of uh, women at Earl Grey School in the East End working on these little gas burners and learning how to cook. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So sort of the many ways that domestic science graduates filtered out into Toronto, into Ontario, off to work in small communities, educating in domestic science there. The case sort of shows the impact that the field had um, on women locally and sort of a little bit further out. Liz was kind enough to send over some digital copies of the photos from the early days of U of T's domestic science program. We've put these up on the website if you want to take a look, but the exhibition will feature countless more. Although this element of the exhibition focuses on the professionalization of women in cooking, the library will also feature materials like cookbooks and magazines that highlight the other ways by which women in the early 20th century could communicate with each other about food. Dialogues that often took place in the form of cooking contests, which were often sponsored by food companies or brands. One such example is magic baking batter. Back in the 1930s, brands like Magic would ask women to submit their best recipe, which incorporated the brand's product. In this case, baking powder. Magic Baking Powder, I believe, um, published um, a request, an ad that it requested women to submit their recipes for, um, I believe it's Magical Mystery Cake. Um, <laughs> and so it's interesting, they, they awarded cash prizes to the women who submitted the winning recipes, and they published them in a magic baking powder booklet. I believe it's called Magical Mystery Cake. And was this before <laughs> or after the Beatles? I have to ask. <laughs> I think this was before, uh, but I'm not, I can let you know. After a little digging, it turns out that the Beatles' 1967 album was almost 30 years after Magic's promotional cooking contest. We dug up the booklet that featured the original recipes, which were published in the early 1930s. But where'd that name of magical mystery come from? Well, magic is pretty self-evident for a contest run by the Magic Baking Powder Company. But the mystery? Well, back in the 1920s and 1930s, during the Depression, mystery cake became a popular term for baked goods that used a surprising a.k.a. mystery ingredient, that was often cheaper to use than the standard ingredient. The most famous example of which was the use of tomato soup in a cake, which apparently still has a devoted following even today. Now, the Magic Baking Powder Cookbook doesn't include any recipes for tomato soup mystery cake, but it does have a few that incorporate mashed potatoes or cold coffee. Just this week, we made one of these mystery cakes— Mrs. McFarland's Two-Tone Mocha Cake, which uses cold coffee in the batter and the frosting. It was delicious. We'll put a link to the whole booklet up on the website. 
Speaking of baking, the exhibition will also feature an entire interactive portion, thanks to work done by students at U of T's iSchool, a.k.a. the Faculty of Information. My co-curator, um, Irina Mihalaki from the iSchool, worked with some museum studies students to help curate the downstairs gallery, which is intended to be more of an interactive space. Uh, so there are some things that you can smell, there are some things that you can touch, and they try to engage a little bit more with the ingredients um, and other roles expected of women other than you know, cooking. So other things present in some of the recipe books that are in the upstairs gallery that uh, talk about what else was expected uh, of a woman during the time period covered by the exhibition. Can I ask what you get to smell? <laughs> so um, we've ordered these scent cubes from England, and the, the students chose pineapple, coconut, and curry as the scents that wove their way, that weave their way through some of the recipes, the trendy recipes that they saw uh, covered in the material that they were looking at for their part of the exhibition. Do you have to guess what the scent is? Can you go in? <laughs> have you given like the, the puzzle away? We haven't uh, said what they are, um, so we might not label them. I think that's a good idea to allow people to just guess what they are. Okay, you heard it here first. The mystery of the smell cubes revealed. So when you visit the exhibition, you can look like a smelling genius to all your friends. If you do decide to visit the exhibition, and I hope you do. It runs from late May to late August 2018. Oh, and did I mention the exhibition is free? That's right, free. So make your way down to Toronto's giant concrete peacock and learn about the fantastic and rich culinary history of Canada this summer. And don't forget those smelling cubes. A huge thanks to Liz Rodolfo, as well as the co-curators of the exhibit, Natalie Cook and Irina Mihalaki as well as the Fisher Library for all their help and resources in putting this episode together. Also on the topic of fun and free things to do with culinary history in Toronto, you can catch me leading walking tours of Toronto's great restaurant history all this summer as part of Heritage Toronto's public tour program. The tour covers everything from Toronto's oldest taverns to the legendary restaurants, which have played host to all kinds of political and celebrity scandals over the years. The tour is running three times this summer. Thursday, May 17th, Saturday, June 9th, and Thursday, August 30th. You can find out more about this free tour, or even pre-register for it, at heritagetoronto.org events. Hope to see you there. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with sound engineering by Mike Port. Music featured on this episode included work by Jazar and Peter Rodenko. Please visit the show notes for this episode at thefeastpodcast.org for tons of resources, pictures, and recipes, including photos from our attempt at one of the magic baking powders, Magical Mystery Cakes. That's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with our season finale. You won't want to miss it. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.